Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Could we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the next episode of the Elk Talk Podcast. I'm Randy. And I'm Corey. And and we're going to talk about elk hunting today. <laughs> yeah, are we, Corey? Are, are we going to talk elk hunting or are we just going to talk about how we wish we were elk hunting? Well, no, we're going to talk about elk hunting while we're sitting here wishing we were elk hunting. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to burn through the sponsorship part real quick, folks. This podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. You can become a member at rmef.org. Not only you can become a member, you should become a member. There you go. Thanks for putting that plug in. If you're not, well, come and talk to us. We'll That's make, right. We'll, <clears throat> we'll get you to be a member in a hurry. Yep. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Sitka Gear, and Sitka Gear is, uh, you know, just taking it to the next level, continuing to take it to the next level. And when they first came out 10 or 11 years ago, they introduced the whole concept of clothing becoming gear and making it more than just a camouflage pattern. And they continue to revolutionize and, and introduce new and awesome gear that makes us comfortable and keeps us safe while we're hunting and we are very thankful for the support from gerber gear uh gerber knives uh and tools if i look in my pack i've got their big game vital i have their vital both are replaceable blade knives i have uh let's see man all kinds of stuff from them uh my center drive multi-tool uh, and then I have, when it, I really need a knife, I can put a lot of pressure on and pry on. Uh, I have a Gator Premium. So go to GerberGear.com and uh, check out all their cool stuff. Totally. And just one more plug for that. We did a video on setting up a long-range rifle. And for whatever reason, the guy that was helping me forgot his tools. So we pulled out our Gerber <laughs> Suspension NXT and uh, fortunately had the tools we needed. Otherwise, it would have been a disastrous uh, event for the day because we were kind of stuck in a place where we didn't have all the tools we needed. Huh. Cool. So, yeah. Another I have plug one for of those Gerber. also. I, di I didn't even know that it had the, so it's got all the adjustment wrenches. It just has a whole bunch of 
cool. tools that I we were able that. to make work. Cool. So, podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps, and I can't say enough this this year especially. I've, I've slowly warmed up to the idea of getting rid of a GPS after uh, taking a long time to warm up to a GPS, and OnX Maps has completely eliminated the need for a GPS using the Hunt app. And, you know, for us, we use it more for in the field, not necessarily to navigate and find our way back, although that is helpful, but uh, to be able to see terrain features and being able to overlay the, the satellite image and being able to see what's over the next ridge without actually hiking over the next ridge uh, makes it easier to hunt, makes it easier to find our way back out. And we also tracked our total distance hiked this year on OnX, so we've got that. We can uh, see how far we went. And, you know, there's so many different layers on there we could go on, but if yeah. uh, you're needing any help in the field with uh, anything, navigation, layers, images, things like that, on X Maps, and I think they're giving us a code to pass on, aren't they? A discount? Isn't it like twenty percent so. discount? The the promo code Elkcock. People are going to get accustomed to using the promo code Elkcock, I believe. And, well, we're uh, keeping it simple for us. You know, we know our listeners are intelligent enough to use different discount codes everywhere but for us to be able to repeat it it's uh we've got to keep it the same yeah yeah oh uh, use the promo code elk doc and save 20 percent off your apps out at onxmaps.com yeah <clears throat> one do you ever get this comment Corey? people see me now that i've converted over to that the smartphone app uh we'll be filming pieces of me scrolling on my phone <laughs> and a, a lot of viewers say what? I thought you were elk hunting, not surfing Facebook or something. Totally. And I'm like, no, I'm actually looking at aerial views. They're looking at something else. But uh, <laughs> You just gave away really your age, Randy. That. You gave away your age by saying you were on Facebook. You should have used Snapchat, and then you would have connected <laughs> with that younger crowd. I don't have a Snapchat account. I don't Snapchat, either. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know Snapchat from uh, NFL.com. So. <laughs> Uh, no, we get that a lot too. Are you guys out elk hunting or why are you on your phone all the time? And it's because yeah. we're looking at Onyx map. Yeah. And then do you have a, uh, do you carry a, a charging device with you at, uh, in your pack? I do. Yep. Me too. And in fact, I think it's a subtle hint. The guys at Onyx just sent me a new one uh, because I'm still a little bit of a safety net guy. I carry my my old gps around also so i'm i'm two timing it uh i think the onyx guys are like randy get rid of that gps here if you need more uh power supplies we'll send you some so when i got home from my last trip there was a box there with a with a i can't even remember what company makes it jackery or something like that uh so i've been carrying one but now i got another one thanks to the folks at onyx totally yeah i carry a backup power pack just because for the phone but also it'll run my i've got a sony a6500 dslr yep. camera and i can plug it right into the power pack and run it off of that for videoing so yep that we do the same thing it's so handy to have that and yeah. then we also have uh our friends at go hunt and you and i before we got the record button hit here we were talking how we're gonna probably start doing more content on the podcast about how you draw tags where where it's at what the deadlines are how the each feature works or each state works and 
the source that I go to for that is the insider service that is provided by GoHunt. And if you go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the insider, use the promo code ELKTALK again, and they're going to give you $50 of free store credit in their gear shop. And I think they sell Rocky Mountain hunting calls in that gear shop. They, they sell do. a lot of stuff. They sell a lot of stuff we use. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one more thing to mention there, go to gohunt.com forward slash elk talk, and you don't even have to use a code. Oh, really? Just, yeah, go oh. to gohunt.com forward slash elk talk. They created a cool little landing page, and they put a picture of you and me on there. I'm just I out did there. Not know that. I'm out I, there right I, now looking at it. Yeah. You it's can official. tell that I've been out in the field since July 30th. That's when I left <laughs> Montana, July 30th. I got home Saturday night, December 1st. Uh, I had a few days at home in between, but now my wife and I are back to that kind of readjustment phase. <laughs> Just getting used to each other again. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, she's going to, uh, by this weekend, she'll say, don't you and your friends have something to do for a week or so? We got to work our way back into this. Uh, well, you mentioned Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and being sold in the Go Hunt gear shop. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the final sponsor on our list that we need to mention and thank today. And, uh, you know, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, I've, I've been obviously using them forever. But uh, I think in the last four or five years, they've kind of upped the game uh, in a lot of ways, not only in, you know, exposure and social media and everything, but in the calls and, and looking for materials to make the calls with that are going above and beyond kind of what's been out there and I had an opportunity to use a new prototype diaphragm this fall and we can talk more about it it's going to be coming out in January but uh incredible and then coupled with uh with a bugle tube it was a pretty good combination this year so you can go to rockymountainhuntingcalls.com or buglingbowl.com either website will get you to the same place and use promo code elktalk and it's going to save you 15% on all of your elk call needs. So diaphragms, bugle tubes, all of that, 15% off using the code ELKTALK. All right. With that out of the way, you've kind of led me into a question <clears throat> and a story I want to hear, Corey. Uh-oh. Your son, Isaac, shot a really big bull in Idaho. And from what I gather, you called him in in late October. Is that true? You know, there there is some truth to that. <laughs> I and we so, can. We, I, what's that? The the question I have is, I don't do much calling after about October fifteenth, and I think oh, you you guys were hunting sometime closer to thanks or uh, Halloween than you were the the peak rut, but yet you called this bull in. Yeah, so you know. I think we need to start at the beginning, and that is talking yep. about Isaac's luck. And <laughs> Isaac, is if you ever want to experience something really cool, just invite Isaac to go with you. He just, when it comes to elk hunting, he has it figured out. And we did, a, our, we did the Destination Elk video project this year, and our finale episode, you know, we recapped everything, gave away all the prizes to the winners, and then we talked about Isaac's hunt there a little bit and then showed the footage from it because I recorded it with a cell phone. So it was an Instagram story. And you don't usually record rifle hunts with a cell phone because of the zooming feature just isn't as strong, 
Right. So the hunt took place. We uh, Isaac was playing football. They uh, made it to state. And we didn't have much time to hunt this fall just with football practice games every Friday night. And then me being in and out and uh, just our schedules didn't align a whole bunch. But on October 26th, it was a Friday night. He had a football game. We're driving home at like 10 o'clock at night from the football game. And I asked his siblings, his my daughter, Jesse, who's 13, and then my son, Sam, who uh, had just turned 12, asked them, either of you guys want to go with me tomorrow? And both of them opted to sleep in. They hadn't got to sleep in for a while and wanted to use Saturday morning to sleep in. So Isaac was uh, third in the rotation to go hunting with me the next morning. And all of a sudden he's up to bat. So he jumped at it and said, yep, I'm going. And so we only had the, the one day to hunt and uh, it was raining. It rained all night. Got up the next morning. It was raining, which, you know, for rifle hunting, it makes it a little tough the way that I know to rifle hunt, which is just go out and wander around and hope you see an elk on an open hillside. And of course I, I'm a little stubborn <laughs> and when it comes to calling, I, I carry my elk calls all the time and it's October 27th. We head out and we hiked in about three and a half or four miles and put him to a good, uh, fitness test, which I'll tell you, football conditioning does not get you ready for elk hunting. He was <laughs> sucking wind and sweating hiking up the hills, but we, uh, we got back into the edge of this clear cut where I wanted to get so we could see. And the fog rolled in, it started raining, and I don't think it was quite snowing, but it was it was definitely a sleet. And we walked this old logging road all the way to the end and got to the end, and I said, well, buddy, you know, it's a tough morning. We're, I don't know, it was 10 o'clock in the morning or so. I said, you ready to head back? And uh, he's like, hey, can we just walk up to the last ridge here and, you know, just see if we can see anything, maybe walk the ridge back and then drop down and hit the, the skid road said, yeah, sure. Which, you know, I was, I was expecting him to fold and want to go back. And he said, no, let's keep going. So we didn't uh, walk another 200, 250 yards. And uh, I stopped and let out a bugle. And as Isaac's horseshoe luck would have it right up over the ridge, a bull answered. And we're back in far enough in an area that I, there was no doubt it wasn't another hunter. It was an elk. And so we kind of sat there and, you know, we're in the open. It's, it's a clear cut. There's a little bit of trees and brush and a little bit of cover, but not a lot, not anything you want to just go bebopping out into the middle of. And so we're kind of strategizing and decided to walk up to the ridge and get up there and get a, a good vantage point. And so at this point, I'm thinking the bull answered us. We got one bugle out of him. We know there's a bull over there. We know it's a clear cut. We're going to slip up there and slip in, get set up and, and hopefully we catch the bull out in the open. Yeah, And we got up to the ridge and we had a pretty good vantage. You know, we could see really good, probably 200 yards in front of us. And then we could tell it was open behind the next ridge. So we sat up there and I let out a, a couple cow calls. And I think I might've bugled again. And the bull answered again. And he answered mm -hmm. pretty immediately, which made me think it's October 27th. He's bugling pretty aggressively. We might have a chance to actually call him in at least, you know, get him coming our way or, or hesitating yeah. on an open hillside and so we actually moved up we, we could have sat there we ended up moving up probably 250 yards and as we're moving up I can see cows on an open hillside so that's kind of got my attention I'm thinking the bull's going to be there with the cows kind of got a, a location pinpointed so we move up to where we're about 350 yards from those cows and I let out a couple cow calls and all of a sudden on the open hillside right next to us the bull screams 
<laughs> and I'm looking on this open hillside thinking, I've got to be able to see him. Why can't I see this bull? And so I'm scanning just frantically trying to pick him up before he sees us because we're kind of exposed on a on an open ridge ourselves. Yeah. And as I'm standing there scanning, he bugles again even closer. And at this point, it's, you know, I'm at frantic level 10 trying to, I'm like, I've got to find him <laughs> quick because Isaac's not going to get a shot. We're in the open. And so I'm looking on this hillside 200 yards away, expecting him to pop out from behind a tree or some brush. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch something moving and I look and 50 yards to our right, the bull's standing there looking our direction. Oh my gosh. What had happened is he was with the cows when he first bugled and we were on the backside of the ridge. And that first bugle, he left those cows and came on a beeline 400 yards up the hill towards us. And we actually, as we're slipping in on the backside of the ridge, we went past the bull. He went past us. We kind of crisscrossed. So we ended up calling him back down the draw, which is why we couldn't find him on that open hillside. He was actually in the draw right next to us, making his way to us. And so anyway, he pops out at 50 yards. He's frontal, kind of just slightly quartering to us, but there's a big, well, not a big, but a sapling uh, fir tree right in front of him. And Isaac's shooting a 300 Winchester short mag. So he could have yeah. shot through that little sapling pretty easily and, and probably not had too much concern, but I, just, I told him, wait for him to turn. And after probably a minute and a half stare down, the bull turns pretty much broadside, still slightly quartering to us, but exposes his side from the tree. And I told Isaac, shoot. And uh, when you tell Isaac to shoot, yeah. it's a it's a thing of beauty. He's, uh, <laughs> he's not only a really good shot at longer distances, but I think he worked that action three times faster than I could say shoot again. And uh, he hit the bull all three shots. As the bull's running off, he shot it twice more and, sh- you know, hit it all three times. It goes and falls over in the middle of a skid road. Oh, no. You're kidding me. Yeah, which didn't really help us a lot because it's, you know, the roads are closed in there. But oh, okay. for working it up and for video purposes, it was uh, pretty epic. Cool. Huh. It looked so th- to be a really, really good bull. It's, I was just going to say that the icing on the cake was it was a really big 6 by 7 the biggest bull he shot, which at 15 years old, you know, it's you can sometimes take that with a grain of salt, but that's his fourth elk. And wow. uh, all four of them have been really nice bulls. So this one was his biggest. And uh, I told him, whatever you do, do not get that lucky horseshoe surgically removed where, wherever it's at right now. But it's <laughs> it's lodged somewhere firmly in Isaac. Oh, man. That's cool. But I guess the, the point of that is a couple things as I'm taking notes here. Don't assume that elk don't bugle just because it's late October. And you were how far back? Four miles back? Yeah, three and a half, four miles. Yeah, which gets back to the point of distance and topography. Usually separate the other hunters, usually put the elk at ease. And I suspect if that guy was in a highly roaded area, he wouldn't be calling. Or he, w- <laughs> If he had a habit <laughs> of calling that much in late October, he probably would have died a few years prior. Yeah, rifle season had been open, general rifle season, over-the-counter tag. It had been open for two weeks at that point. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Had he been within a mile of any road, I think he would have uh, already been in somebody's cooler. Yeah. 
the the calling you were doing was it with the new prototypes you were using <laughs> it actually wasn't i was using my old standby go-to only because uh i really wasn't expecting to call and so i didn't grab my my normal little sleeve of calls i just grabbed the one that was still in my bugle tube and looked and saw there's a diaphragm in there and thought i'm good to go and went so i was using the all-star diaphragm the the green one and uh it left the new one sitting at home <laughs> the only day all fall that i that i uh resorted back to the all-star which the all-star is a great call but i really am fond of the new call and had some had some good encounters with it yeah but i think so one of the things you know to to point out is this year was an off year for the rut at least according to my experience it, it just it seemed to hit late I think the hot, dry weather we experienced, especially here in Idaho, we had, you know, I think the hottest, maybe not the hottest, but the driest summer I can remember. And it, we just didn't get any moisture, which usually you'll get a rainstorm first part of September or something. We just didn't get that moisture that usually, you know, helps trigger the rut. And so I think the elk rutted a little bit later, which, you know, if you look at a second rut, the cows coming into a second estrus, uh, maybe 28 days after the first estrus cycle, uh, it hits, you know, right there about that October 27th time frame. So I'm thinking there probably was a, a hot cow that didn't get bred the first time and had come back into that estrus cycle around the 27th of October. And that bull was, I mean, he came on a string to our calls. He was very protective and he was looking to, to establish his dominance there. That is so cool. <laughs> uh, well, goes to show you that for every quote-unquote standard rule, there's always going to be exceptions. And you don't find out about the exceptions, I guess, until you try and experiment a little bit. Totally. So, so yeah. did you guys and, have and any you know, help get, getting it out, or did you guys get to do that yourselves? We, uh, just Isaac and I, got it out ourselves. So it, was, uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but uh, yeah. packing an elk is never an easy chore so yeah we had reception there and my wife we'd texted a picture to her and she was wanting to bring the pack frames in and help out but by the time we got it cut up and hiked up to the ridge we were able to get it out of there and it was good you know hunting hunting with your children's always uh extra special when they're successful and and they have that fire i mean just the excitement to see him this is his fourth elk so it's not you know and with a rifle sometimes it's not as exciting but to see that excitement continue to escalate in him there's uh it's just a pretty special opportunity yeah it's for anyone listening if you have kids uh, i hope you're taking them out and doing this stuff because i can speak from my own personal experience that someday they become adults and you don't get to see them that much. And when you do, your time with them, you're competing with new jobs or careers they're trying to build or relationships. You know, they're in the process of possibly married or getting married or whatever. And you got to be respectful of the time that they, have, that they no longer have because of those relationships. And I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that Matthew, my son, and I, we try to block out one hunt a year where we just, this is a week 
where he and I go do whatever. And uh, I don't know how long we'll be able to do that from a time standpoint, but for right now, uh, he's 28, and uh, we we try to do it. This year was a he had a Wyoming elk tag. I saw a picture. Now. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he had maximum points in Wyoming. And when we applied, all of us applied separately last year, last January, the, the Wyoming deadline is January 1st through the 31st. You get to, the good news about Wyoming is you find out sometime in mid to late February. So, but <clears throat> I told Matthew, I said, look, you got maximum points. You've got some really, really good options in front of you here. You can do that, or you can party app with, we have an uncle, Larry Stickler is his name, and we, we try to hunt with friends and family whenever we can also. And I asked Matthew, I said, you, you want to burn your max points on a higher unit, or you maybe want to step down a, what some would say, maybe a unit or two and hunt with Larry. Because Larry was three points, I think, below maximum or four. And instantly Matthew said, oh, I want to hunt with Larry. I don't, it doesn't matter to me where we hunt. I just want to hunt with him. So they applied as a party and they drew. And it's a November hunt, which I, I was pretty excited about because I knew with weather that the elk would hopefully be down closer to the winter range. But we <clears throat> we had one little hiccup that came up in October. Those who follow our platforms have seen my Uncle Larry on our episodes. And for the last six years, he's been on a clinical trial for his lymphoma. He has an aggressive form of lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. And he gets treated at the MD Anderson Cancer Clinic in Houston. And so he's one of less than 100 people on this clinical trial. And it's been working great. Other than now... Uh, a lot of the people in that trial are having heart complications to the point where some of them have even died. So in October, he starts having all these heart issues and he goes to his doctors and they said, no, you are not going to do something as exerting as elk hunting. You, you just can't go. Uh, so <clears throat> he was pretty bummed about it. Matthew and I were pretty bummed about it. Uh, we we're, we're really looking forward to that because Larry's 72 after all he's been through health wise you you know like he says you you don't take anything for granted and uh but uh, a side note to that is though I, and i didn't know this wyoming has a cool program where if you have to miss your hunt because of uh some sort of medical reason yep. as long as you fill out these forms and send them in with a doctor's note and explanation of everything you can apply to reserve that tag for the following year. Oh, uh, really? I, I yeah. knew or I thought you could uh, reinstate your points. I didn't realize you could reserve the tag for the next year. That's really cool. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a new thing. Wyoming, I guess, came up with it two or three years ago is what one of my friends in Wyoming said. <clears throat> and he's the one who told me about it. Uh, Buzz Hedick is his name. He was He joined us on this hunt. Uh, and he said, oh, you need to make sure Larry applies for this. So we sent everything in, uh, the person told Larry, yeah, we've got all your information. Uh, they have what's called a, a license review board, I think is what it's called down there. <clears throat> and they look at these applications and, uh, they say yes or no, whether they they'll approve the reservation for the following year. But 
uh, all indicators are that if Larry's health allows, he would have the tag for next year for 2019. But we, uh, we, we, we went and did the hunt. Matthew ha had the tag. So we went and did the hunt with him and it was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> Wyoming knows how to manage for not just quality bulls, but a quality experience. Uh, it was, we went the last part of the season. I think everyone else had filled their tags, but when we showed up down there, there's no snow. And I'm thinking, oh man, they're going to be way, way up high. So <clears throat> we go out there the first day, uh, our buddy Buzz who lives, I don't know, hour, hour and a half away. He'd been out there doing a little scouting and he told us, he said, look, the bulls are actually down closer to the winter range, even though there's no snow. And I can only attribute that to lack of hunting pressure. One of the good parts of these limited entry tags in any state is you have less hunting pressure and you're getting to hunt elk that aren't pushed to the far, far back corners. Yeah, you're not going to get the tag every year, but uh, it's fun to have one of those every once in a while. So I, I'm embarrassed to say how many bulls we saw the first day, but next week on our YouTube channel, people will get to see that hunt. Uh, the first day we saw 84 bulls. And, wow. Uh, yeah. In one crazy. day. I've never seen that many bulls on a day of hunting in my life. <laughs> you just piqued everyone's interest in the episode <laughs> we're going to do on applying to Wyoming <laughs> for elk tags, <clears throat> including yeah, mine. <laughs> anyone who watches our content when Matthew is on the episode, I think he knows what buttons to push for his old man. And... He is the most deliberate person in the world. We see, I, I don't know how many nice six points. And he's like, nah, I, you know, it took me a long time to draw this tag. I think I'll just kind of see if I can milk it for a little more. And I, I'm over there just about pulling my hair out. And he, you can tell he just, he thinks it's so funny when I would have filled that tag by 10 o'clock that morning. And I'm all wound up and he's like, no, nah, I'm going to take some photographs. No, nah, I'm going to get out the zoom lens and get some better footage. And I, I don't know how much of that is just him trying to get me wound up or if it really is, he's just there enjoying the experience, which <laughs> I, I think it is more of the latter because he, he works a lot and he doesn't get nearly the time to go and do this stuff as he did when he grew up and here in montana so i uh, i can see his point you know if you only get one week a year to hunt you probably don't want to end it at 10 o'clock the first morning but yeah uh i i was ribbing him pretty hard let's put it that way and so he he passed every bull the first day in the evening he made kind of a half-hearted stock on a really nice big six point probably in the 330 to 340 range but i <laughs> a half-hearted effort tell his heart, on a 330 yeah. 340 bull yeah i i could tell his heart really wasn't in it and uh <laughs> I, he, he ended up passing he had a he had a couple times a shot between 400 and 450 and he's he's just not into the long range stuff he shoots you know quite a bit but he just like nah we'll come back tomorrow we'll look around so the second day we thought, well, everybody's, we, we've looked at everybody out here, every elk out here. Let's go 
search for some new ground and <clears throat> we did that and we went up really high to the point where the roads were drifted shut and we didn't see hardly anything for elk so then we went way over to another part of the unit saw a few elk nothing real big came back down to this transition range just above the winter range and once again there were elk all over the place i i still to some degree Corey, am at a loss as to why they are down that low uh this early in in the winter period or uh, you know before the snow got really really deep and yeah and, and we've you've talked about transition ranges before and maybe we can uh touch on that i want to hear the rest of the story first but let's remember to come back yeah. to transition ranges yeah so the the second day we, we after we make this big loop it's probably noon and I'm thinking, well, now we're getting a little bit better taste of what elk hunting should be like. I think we'd seen four bulls that day, and it was from far, far away where we saw them. So, but yeah, this, this is more like elk hunting. <clears throat> we come back to the the place where we'd been the first morning, and that morning my camera guy, Marcus, had seen a really nice bull go over the ridge into this kind of, desert country where i would have never looked for elk other than a buzz the guy with us had said yeah they're in there occasionally and marcus had seen a nice bull go in there so we thought well let's drive around there get up on that big ridge see what we can see so buzz goes one way i go another way matthew goes a different direction marcus goes a different direction and we got pretty much every direction covered and i go out on the west end of this ridge and i see two bulls bedded and like an idiot, I hadn't brought my spotting scope. So come back to the truck, get the spotter. All the other guys can see me at the truck digging for the spotter, and I'm waving them down, and they come back. And I told them, I said, there's two bulls bedded out here. I don't know if one of them is the big one, but I can tell they're pretty nice through my bino. So all four of us hike out there. And by the time we get there, the two bedded bulls I saw becomes a group of six. And <clears throat> we're inspecting them through the spotting scope. One of them's probably 3.30. We're like, whoa, wow, that's, we should think about that. And while we're looking at him, Matthew, when he's not on the spotter, he's glassing around and he looks right down to our left, just, I think, 600 yards away. He said, well, what about these three over here? And <laughs> we all turn and look. And with the naked eye, you could see big antlers on one of them. And uh, when we put the spotter on them, uh, I I just about jumped out of my skin. I'm like, holy crap, look at that one. And Matthew's like, oh, yeah, I think we should hike over and get a better look at that one. <laughs> I'm like, well, at least we're making some progress here. And so we go, <laughs> we walk back to the truck, grab our packs, grab our rifles, and we hike over there, get set up. 285 yards away, the bull is bedded straight away from us. And Matthew's decided, yeah, I think I probably ought to shoot this one. And so we stood there. The camera footage rolled for 25, I think, 23 or 25 minutes before the bull stood up. And when it stood up, it starts walking out of frame. I'm like, oh, no, after all this time sitting here, the bull's going to walk out of, walk behind this hill, and we're not going to get a shot. Well, we lucked out. He stopped to look at the other two bulls that were with him and gave Matthew a perfect shot. Boom. Man. Yeah. But it was 
So let's see, that was November 16th. So 20 days after you guys, or 19 days after you guys shot a bugling bull, these bulls were bachelored up in sanctuary areas out on the transition range, pretty close to their winter range. So it's kind of interesting how it can be that much different in that short a period of time. And I was going to ask, did you hear with, with 84 bulls spotted on opening day, did you hear any bugling or any vocalization while you were out there? You know, the, the, I told you the stock Matthew made that evening, that bull was in with a group of about a hundred cows. And there was a, I think there were eight bulls in that group, uh, branch, like nice six point bulls. And there were some that were sparring. There was some bugling. There was some cow calling going on November 16th or yeah, let's see. No, that, that night would have been November 15th. So <laughs> it's, it's crazy when you think about it, that there's still that kind of activity going on. And this big bull, everybody was still, when I say everybody, all the other bulls were still kind of keeping their distance from him. <laughs> and I, I don't know if there was, like you said, a cow that came into a really late cycle there or what the deal was. But that night there was, there was some bugling going on which that's i that's definitely the exception far far outside the the bell curve of when you're going to hear bugling in my experience totally and i think you know there there's a difference between hearing bugles and vocalization and having a chance of using calls to to be a benefit to the hunt and i think that you know that novemberish time frame is kind of when everything you know, they come into those transition areas, they start the migrations if they migrate, and a lot of different herds come back together. And so I think there is a lot of just vocalization to keep things kind of in order and and everything. And I've noticed it the last couple of weeks just around my house with the, we've got a huge herd of cows that have moved down in there. Same issues, transition range. We got about 14 inches of snow uh, over the weekend and the elk moved right into where our houses and then they'll end up down on the flats as soon as we get another storm or it freezes up really good but they're very vocal and the you know cows are out there doing the cow bugling and the calves especially are, are very animated in their calling right now and you know i don't think you'd ever go out there and cow call and probably call them in necessarily right now but if you're out hunting and and get into herd of elk you know it certainly doesn't hurt to throw out a couple cow calls and and listen for sure to find out exactly where they are. Yeah. And <clears throat> this is confession from Randy. I always keep a diaphragm call in my bino harness. I didn't have it with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I felt so stupid because when I started, uh, and my hearing is very impaired. Even I can hear this cow calling and this bugling going on over the ridge. And, uh, I don't know that it would have made a difference in that situation. I think when they started moving off, maybe they would have been at ease a little bit. But Matthew, I, I could tell he wasn't going to shoot one of those, even though I would have shot that thing so fast. Oh, man. But <laughs> So the, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, I was talking about there is transition ranges. The, the summer range in this part of Wyoming is over 9,000 feet. And uh, uh, we went up. We didn't get up to the top of 9,000, but it, it's a limited entry unit, so there's not a lot of hunting pressure. There were hardly any tracks up where we, where we had to turn around. We had fresh snow. 
we weren't seeing anything for track. So that summer range is, you know, probably 8,500 to 9,500. 9, the winter range is down there from anywhere from 6,000 to 7,000 in this area. So you got this transition range of, you know, as far as what it is in miles of how far they migrate, it's maybe anywhere from two miles to 10 miles, depending on where they're moving from. And I call that the transition range, where it's that range they use when they leave the summer range and start heading to the winter range. But I, I expected them to be on the high end of that transition range because there was hardly any snow. I mean, there was some, but not much, not enough to really bother a big old bull elk. But they weren't. They were down on the low end of the transition range. They weren't quite out on the winter range yet, but they were on those windswept ridges, those rocky knobs, the badland country, places that you'd you'd expect to see bachelor groups of bull elk, but they were just way lower than I expected. And all I can attribute that to is the lack of hunting pressure. Because it, if it was an over-the-counter unit with a lot of hunting pressure, my experience is like here in Montana when we were hunting them the week prior to that, they were way up at the top of their transition range, way closer to the summer range than they were the winter range. And I think that was just a function of hunting pressure, not weather. Totally. Yeah, and, and where we found Isaac's bull, you know, I think it's it's before the migration starts, but they were in the exact same place they were in September. So they were still in their rut area October twenty seventh, and then it's about four miles um, out to the the main ridge that overlooks the valley, and that would be kind of their transition area on that main ridge, and then they drop down into the valley, and kind of the same thing. You know, they'll stay even clear back up in there in that rutting area until they get a good storm, and once we get the first snowstorm, the cows will come down, the bulls will stay there, you know, back yep. in that rutting area higher in the sanctuaries. And then uh, once it starts freezing up and the snow gets crunchy and the food's a little bit harder to come by, those cows will go right down on the flats and the bulls will usually come over into about that transition area and that's where they stay all winter. And I think, you know, the difference between what you're describing and what I see is 100% pressure, you know, and accessibility. It's just we're in an over-the-counter area where it's a general season. People are hunting them until November 3rd or so. And even after that, you know, there's still access. People are out snowmobiling, doing different things. And those bulls, they stay up a little higher than what I think they would actually like to do. I think they'd like to be right down on the flats with the cows. Yeah, that's where the best food is and the <clears throat> the easier living. I just think that no matter where they're, wherever the elk are as a group on the transition range, my experience is the bulls are always higher anywhere from 300 to 800 feet of elevation higher than where the cows are going to be yeah and they'll they like you said if the cows are out on the winter range <clears throat> a lot of times the bulls will still stage on those bald ridges or those south facing slopes wherever they can still make a living and they they're just always both in terms of distance and time the bachelor groups of bulls are always a bit higher and later than what the cows are at least in my experience totally yeah and that that goes from right now in november you know early part of december all the way through into march and april and they shed their antlers and 
we do a lot of shed hunting and it's the same if you find a great big group of cows you're going to have to go higher in elevation to find the antlers the bulls are always going to be up higher elevation and you know i'm right now transitioning from elk hunting into predator hunting for the winter and, and wolf hunting especially and we noticed that last year the wolves target those bulls for that very reason the bulls are up higher they're in deeper snow they're uh, much smaller groups they get down on the flats where there's 200 cows wintering and it becomes harder to hunt them for a group of wolves and it's the same for us you know you get into a herd with 100 elk and it's a lot more difficult even though there's a lot of targets there there's a lot of eyes and those bulls become an easy target for wolves in the winter for that reason that they stay up higher they're more solitary you know three or four bulls sometimes in a bachelor group maybe eight or ten and they're just in that deep snow where they're you know hanging back they don't like the pressure they don't tolerate pressure nearly like the cows and the younger bulls do so those mature bulls are the i think the primary target for predators in the winter namely wolves but also mountain lions just because of where they hang out yeah i you know this area we were at in wyoming in central wyoming there's really not much in the way of wolves there i think that might also have some some impact on where these bulls were located in Montana, even in our limited entry units that have wolves, uh, you probably wouldn't see bulls that exposed and that vulnerable until late December. Uh, and I, again, none of this is science that I can cite. It's just my observation of spending a lot of time hunting elk, hunting wolves, seeing how they've reacted and responded to the reintroduction or the, the you know, the increase abundance of wolves uh, you'll get people who say that it's completely changed their behaviors and maybe it has um, but i know this if wyoming will give larry this tag next year i'm going to be losing a lot of sleep i, I just <laughs> man it's fun and, and yeah that everyone told me look you're not going to shoot 370 inch bulls in this unit <clears throat> and that's fine you know you show me nice six-point bulls all day long, I, I, I don't know what more I could do to have uh, a better time than to do that. And it's a weird hunt in that there's a, if you hunt Wyoming much, you know there's a lot of oil and gas activity. So there are roads in a lot of places on these winter and transition ranges. So we would just drive up to these knobs. We'd go out on the ridges and glass. And yeah, you're seeing them a mile, two miles, three miles away, but it's such open country. You can do that and, uh, made for a really, really fun hunt. So I, back to your point about hunting with your kids. Oh gosh, that was, that's going to go down as one of the, one of the better elk hunts Matthew and I have ever had. And it's the rarity of our time together makes it even that much more special. Yeah, and seeing 84 bulls on the first day, that's just, that's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, when that's... people see the footage, I think, you know, in fact, we said, folks, we are not in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> we are in Wyoming, but we are not in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> you wouldn't have seen 84 elk in Yellowstone Park. That's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let alone 84 that bulls. That's, that's so, so cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> that just goes to show, well... I won't go there. We'll save it for an episode <laughs> where we talk about wolf hunting. Say, but you just mentioned that. there were no wolves in that area, and 
I don't think you're going to go into a wolf-infested unit and see 84 bulls. No. Not stacked no. up together. <clears throat> not not a jam. And so I, <coughs> excuse me, for me, I, I like the way that some of these states manage elk and, and I'm a little bit spoiled in the, and so are you, in that we live in states where we're going to get our elk tag every year. We, we don't have to worry about, are we going to go elk hunting this year? So I think, let's see, you can get over the counter tags as a resident. If you live in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Oregon. Washington, Washington Washington has some over-the-counter resident tags. Okay. So I'm kind of spoiled in that I always use my my home state as the safety net that I'm going to get to go elk hunting this year. And then I I apply in all these other states for limited entry hunts, or I know that I'm going to get to join my son or one of my crew on my video crew here or a friend whoever it might be uh those are fun hunts when you occasionally get to go do one of those limited entry hunts because uh, prior to that we did two just general over-the-counter units here in montana and it was tough when it was that warm and that much hunting pressure the elk were up way way high really high uh it just function of what it is when you have so uh, i i'm always uh, i'm playing both sides of the fence i guess i i love the opportunity that we have in places like montana and idaho colorado you know that we get to go but i also play that other side of the fence of applying for limited entry tags in every state that i possibly can so i guess we we're spoiled Corey. we got the best of both worlds we are. No, and that's, you know, when we get into talking application strategies, we can talk more about that. But that's absolutely a part of my strategy is, you know, I've got a long-term outlook. I've got more of a short-term, and then I've got my standbys. And we're so lucky to, to still have quality areas where we can just go to the Walmart and buy an elk tag and go hunting. And that's, you know, something I think we've got to be careful to protect because, yeah. Obviously, you look at where money is and where hunting's going towards money, and you know, completely away from public land issues. Another issue is just the the revenue stream and the struggles that some of the fish and game departments have. And so, uh, it's definitely a, a luxury that I think uh, need to educate more people on and make sure we're protecting. Yeah, I, I agree, and I I hope that when I, one of the things as I was worried about telling Matthew's story is that it was a limited entry hunt. I think this year took nine or 10 points to draw the tag. <clears throat> I was worried that the listener's going to say, oh, great. I don't have nine or 10 points. You, your hunt uh, that you talked about with Isaac, that tag, it, was that in one of the units that non-residents can, and I don't want to give away any oh, yeah. real no, secrets. But, you can, so but Idaho as has a non-resident, a... could I have come and bought that elk tag? Oh, absolutely. Idaho has a cap on non-resident tags, like a total cap, but not necessarily, yeah. you know, some units are on a quota, but for, for the most part, the general over-the-counter hunts, there's just a quota on the total number of non-resident tags that the state sells every year. And I think this year they sold out around September 15th, 16th, somewhere in there, they hit that quota. Um, but up until then which obviously archery seasons are already open and everything. But up until that point when they hit that quota, uh, 
I don't know the percentage, but I would say 75% of the state is open for over-the-counter for a non-resident to just show up and buy a tag. Yeah. Some of the units, some of the units do have, they're an over-the-counter tag, but they do have a quota on how many they can sell. And some of those go a little bit earlier, but for the most part, you've got half of the state where you can just show up as a non-resident or, you know, get online as a non-resident and buy a tag and not really have any concern about uh, getting a tag unless you wait until after that September time frame. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the reason I bring that up is I want people to understand that if, if you're serious about elk hunting or wanting to go elk hunting, there is a place where you can go every year. You just explain the Idaho situation. Colorado has over-the-counter tags in many of their units for their second rifle, third rifle, and their archery seasons. Uh, Wyoming, the easiest tag to draw in Wyoming is the general tag. And with that general tag, you can hunt a lot of their units September 1st through the 30th for archery. And then whatever the season dates are for the general rifle season for that unit. Montana, uh, we had the guys from Gerber came over uh, and we hunted an over-the-counter general tag. They ended up picking up that tag, uh, I think sometime in in may or june well after the drawing uh montana gets a lot of leftovers some years or people return their tags and you get on the alternate list so there's a lot of places and a lot of ways that you can hunt elk every year and i i, I strongly suggest people hunt elk every year even if it's not your glory tag unit totally yeah and there's so many opportunities you know and, and i think it gets confusing and and people struggle to even know where to start. So hopefully as we get into some of these application strategies and talk about each state, we can, uh, with I think the combined experience you and I have with hunting these different states, hopefully uh, encourage people and, and open their eyes to what's really available and that it's not all that expensive. Yes, it's there is an expense, like anything that you want to do that's fun. There's There's an expense, but it's not as expensive as most people think, and it's more readily available than what most people think to be able to hunt elk every year, at least every other year. Yeah. I, that's the, those are some, I guess, myths or misconceptions that I hope over the course of time I can, or, or we can dispel because so many people still tell me, oh, elk hunting is a rich man's game. No, it's, it takes a little discipline to save a little money, but you can definitely do it every other year, if not every year. And uh, Go Hunt has asked me this year, this winter, if I'll do a video series called Hunt Elk Every Year. And we're going to walk through how you use the Go Hunt system to hunt elk every year. There's some place, some way, some season where you, no matter where you live, if you put a little discipline to your saving and budgeting, you should be elk hunting. And so hopefully by the time we're done with that series, people will, hopefully a couple people will say, oh, yeah, I think I'll go elk hunting this year. Totally. Yep. No, and there's just so many opportunities that if you have a dream of going elk hunting, now's the time. Don't wait. Don't say you've got to wait 20 years or you got to save money for 10 years. Like you mentioned, and we've, you and I have both broke down the numbers, but I think realistically for $1,500, you can hunt a non-resident tag out of state to include travel and food and gas and you know, probably even 
throwing in a couple hundred dollars towards processing there. And uh, when you break that down on a daily basis, that's $5 a day to save. That's $150 a month. You know, you go and get a part-time job at the local retail, whatever, sporting goods store and work two Saturdays a month and, and you're going to save that. So it's it's doable, certainly not discounting the fact that $1,500 is a chunk of money, but if you're serious about elk hunting and it's a dream, $1,500 shouldn't stand between you and your dream and making yep. it happen. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the other thing that uh, just uh, just a perspective, I guess, that comes with getting older is I just turned 54 and I don't know how many years of elk hunting I have in front of me, but that's one year less than I had a year ago uh, and 10 years less than I had 10 years ago. A lot of people get into this point game and they just accumulate points, accumulate points, accumulate points. And think often there's the misconception that, well, if I draw a tag that took 15 points, I'm guaranteed some big bull some you know 350 or better <laughs> bull and that's not the case at all i've drawn some fantastic elk tags but because it was a drought year because something else happened because of my schedule or my calendar i didn't get to hunt it the uh, in this absolute prime peak manner or period that i'd hoped for uh and so i've through time i've come to realize that your chance of shooting nice mature bull elk are way better if you go every few years and go multiple times versus if you just wait for your one time that, oh, I just burned 15 points and wherever it might be. I know I'm going to shoot a big one. Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> your odds are way better if you could go seven, five, six, seven times over that 15 years versus that one time in 15 years. Yep. No, and I think Arizona residents have it the worst as far as being in that mindset that it takes them 15 years to draw a quality tag. And so they just put off elk hunting for 15 years. They don't even consider the opportunity or the option to go elk hunting maybe in Colorado, which is a fairly short drive from Arizona. Yeah, uh, yeah. They wait that 15 or 18 years. They draw their once-in-a-lifetime tag that is in a really good unit, but they don't have any elk hunting experience prior to that hunt. And they go out there and hunt for their one week vacation and they aren't even getting into elk or seeing big bulls. And they you know, end up shooting a five point if they're lucky and, and get one at all. And that's, they're, they're ruined on elk hunting at that point. They don't ever want to go again because they've wasted all that time and energy and anticipation and then go out there and don't have that experience. And I try to encourage people go to Colorado over the counter if that's what's close to you. If you're coming from, the Midwest or back East, you know, Colorado is a, is an easy place to get to just go and be in elk country, get used to the elevation, get used to finding sign and, and all of those things. Even if you're saving points for a, for a once in a lifetime type of a hunt, it's so vital to have that experience and to experience elk hunting four or five times before you spend 15 points on a hunt that it could be a really good hunt, but it's not going to be if you're not a, a good elk hunter. Yeah, or you could run into tough conditions or a drought year or a ton of hunting pressure that you didn't expect or who knows what it might be. Uh, <clears throat> my point is go when you can. I'm, I'm, as you were talking, I'm thinking, all right, what's, what's the highest number of elk points I have right now in any state? Colorado, <laughs> I've got one. 
uh, let's see, Arizona, I've got three points. Nevada, I've got three points. Utah, I'm in the penalty box still because I drew in 2014. Uh, Wyoming, I've got one point. Montana, I think I've got three points. I might be forgetting a state of <clears throat> but just, there, just but. to clarify your comment about being in the penalty box, you didn't do anything illegal and, and have to sit oh. out. When you draw a tag <laughs> yeah. in Utah, there's a five-year yeah. waiting period there. So Randy's in the five-year waiting period. He's not on probation for anything yeah. illegal. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that, Corey. Around here, we call it getting put in the penalty box. <laughs> Maybe people think, oh, that Newberg, what's he doing to be in so much trouble in Utah? <laughs> No, there's a five-year wait period. That's that's what I meant by that. Yeah. Um, but, but the reason I, I started thinking about that is there was a time I thought, boy, I need all these points in all these places. And that really didn't turn out to be uh, as effective as burning my points every few years in these states and just going. Uh, I've shot my best elk in units that don't take tons and tons of points maybe it takes three points or four points like arizona you know i think a lot of non-residents view arizona as their home run state and that's great there are amazing hunts there do that if that's what works for you but i love hunting their late rifle hunts and there's a lot of those late rifle hunts that you can realistically expect to draw every four to seven years well that's to me you send me down there with a rifle on a, on one of their late rifle hunts, I'm going to have a pretty darn good time. I might miss one like I did uh, in 2013. Still embarrassed about that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> anyone who saw that episode is like, whoa, Randy, that was a big one. Yeah, that was a great big one. <laughs> but Didn't <clears> miss it on the, purpose. The, yeah, sure. Uh, the the idea of that is like this year, right now, today as we're speaking, one of my friends from Wisconsin has drawn back-to-back late rifle hunts down there. So he drew with, I think, five points last year, and he had a loyalty point because he'd been in the system for more than five years. He applied for the same unit again this year with just his one loyalty point, and he drew again. It, it you know, the, in these bo- states with bonus point systems, you can draw. Statistically, you have a chance to draw every year. It might be a low chance, but you still have a chance. So I, I just hope the, the message that, that we're talking about is just try to go somewhere every year. Have a current year plan. That's kind of your safety net. Have a mid-year or, or mid-range plan. And yeah, I have a long-term plan. If there's something that you're just dreaming about that, hey, I got to go do that someday and I'm willing to wait 15 or 18 or 20 years, yeah, by all means do that. But we all have limited budgets of money and time. Don't let those budgets be allocated for the 20-year plan without doing anything this year. Yep. I agree. It's just too much fun to not be out doing and and honestly, it's uh, you're going to enjoy it more when you're younger than you will when you're older. And that's, <laughs> you know, I'm, you, you mentioned you just turned 54. I'm yeah. 43. So, you know, I, I, I still consider myself incredibly young and hope I have a, at least 43 more years of elk hunting in me. But I've noticed <laughs> the, the mountains are steeper than they were 10 years ago. And I'm sure that's a 
you know, global warming effect or something, not a not a <laughs> effect from my age. But I've yeah, had the opportunity to hunt with some people who are a little bit more uh, progressed in maturity, and <laughs> it gets increasingly difficult. And I don't know, you know, I think it's different for everybody at what point that becomes more difficult. Uh, but there is no doubt that elk hunting is more enjoyable from a physical aspect when you're younger than, than it's going to be when you're older. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would say that 100%. Uh, with each year, there's another ache, another pain. The The slope does look a little steeper. The ridge you see in the distance, you swear that it's two miles further this year than it was four years ago. <laughs> uh, but I... For me, anyhow, I, I I have more interest in going as often as I can now. Uh, the old saying, beware of an old man in a hurry, I think that applies to hunters. I, I'm in a hurry to go and hunt as many places as I can before they tell me I'm done hunting. Yep. Uh, and I, I can see every year that the, my pendulum swings from the, oh, I got to have this great tag more over to the just give me a tag just give me a tag give me two tags and uh this year i did have two elk tags i had an elk tag in new mexico and an elk tag in montana and again if we're in confession mode Corey, i got to go on some really cool elk hunts this year and had some family and friends who filled elk tags on our hunts but this is the first year and i i can't remember i'm sure it was probably in the early 2000s this is the first year i haven't shot an elk so what am i doing i'm recording a podcast about elk hunting when i didn't even fill my tag this year well if if we're going to uh go ahead and be in confession mode here and and uh, make people question even more what they're doing listening to us i'm uh i'm in the same boat as you i did not fill an elk tag this year i had opportunities on both of the tags that i had in the one in Oregon and uh, one in Wyoming, and got shots in both states and failed to uh, put one in the freezer. So it's, uh, well, you know, I, I, I go back to the best way to learn to be successful is through failure. And yep. I guess uh, maybe we need to do another podcast here and, and recap our season and talk about what went wrong, because if we're hoping for other people to learn anything from us, maybe through our failures, they can... Uh, they can learn more about success because <laughs> this year they're uh, they're not going to learn success from either of our success. It doesn't sound like. Yeah. Well, uh, thinking about that, one of the hunts where we did not shoot anything, it was the the guys from Gerber came to Montana second week of rifle season, and and I I use this even though it was a general tag. This can happen if you wait years and years for your quote unquote glory tag. On the five-day hunt, we had three days of zero visibility between fog and blizzards and snow. <clears throat> you think about, what if that was my five-day window where I'd waited forever to draw my tag in Nevada or Utah or Arizona or whatever? Yeah. You, you, that's a roll of the dice that you, if, I can't even imagine how disappointing it would have been if that was a tag that took 15 points. And it's a short season, and you lost half of your hunt due to no visibility. Yep. Uh, and you think about throughout the season, all of the elements that you could face that would put a pretty good damper on a hunt, you know, between 
forest fires and drought and, you know, flash floods in September that close roads. I mean, there's just all of these natural things that you don't have control over that once you draw your tag and commit to that week, sometimes that's, that's all you got. And yeah, this year I specifically applied for the early archery season in, uh, uh, New Mexico because I wanted to miss the full moon period. Well, I caught the hot 90 degree weather period. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not uncommon in New Mexico the first week of September. Yeah. So I I just throw those things out there not to make excuses. I mean, you still got to hunt it. It's part of what the challenge is. But you just never know when those kind of things are going to happen. And you've waited forever for this tag. Those could be a reality you have to deal with. And I'd way rather have those realities pop up in a tag that I can draw every three to five years versus the tag I waited 15 years for. Yep. And I do have, I do have high points in a couple states and it's part of my application strategy. I want that 10 to 15 point hunt every six or seven years. So if I have two states where I'm, you know, adding up to 15 points and they're staggered a little bit. I can look yeah. forward to that hunt every six or seven years. And then I've got states, you know, with probably two or three states that you can draw a tag with two to six points. And so those I'm counting on every two to three years as they're staggered. And then I fill in with over-the-counter as needed from there. And so, yeah, I think, you know, it's, yeah, just don't wait. Don't wait for that 15 or 10 or even eight-point unit Go and hunt somewhere. That doesn't mean don't save up one of one of those states or apply for a state for a quality hunt. But yeah. in the meantime, there's more than ample opportunity to hunt elk consistently and often. Yeah, and <clears throat> I use Idaho and New Mexico a bit as my swing for the fences states. There's no point system in either either of yep. those states. But I I can kind of predict. I I would bet next year I'm going to hunt a first or fourth rifle tag in Colorado and I'm up to two points now. Yeah, I lied. I thought I only had one. I have two with two points. Yeah. It's not going to be a super great hunt. It's just going to be less hunting pressure, a higher quality experience. I'm not going to be hunting great big bulls, but I know that now that I cashed out, uh, in Colorado, I, at one time I had 19 points and now I was doing what you were talking about, waiting, waiting, and, and kind of had a couple states as my my dream kind of want to go do that thing. Well, now that I've done that, Colorado is back to a every two or three years I plan on hunting elk there. And if I don't do over the counter, I'll you know for two points I can get a lot of the first season rifle hunts, and those are fun hunts. So I I I can see myself doing that regularly next year. <clears throat> well. I'm not going to jinx myself. I was going to make the proclamation right here that next year I'm going to get back on track with filling elk tags, but I don't know <laughs> that that'll be the case. Um, hey, it starts with a plan, so we're going to go with that plan. <laughs> uh, that's true. My number one plan next year is I'm hunting Montana every day I possibly can in the in the rut, in, in the archery season. I am not going anywhere else for the first three weeks of September. I'm going to be right here in Montana. Wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, we can we can talk come, more after the podcast you, you about how we can uh, make our plans align for next year. But yeah, I was going to say, you going to join me next year? <laughs> I uh, I don't know if I can make it another season without sharing an elk camp with you. So all right, I mean, if you draw Arizona or something like that next year, and you need somebody who's camp cook, I don't I don't cook that great, but you know, I could have it ready when you came in in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you need someone to do laundry, uh, someone to run to town, get snacks or whatever, uh, let me know. Uh, I'll probably be available for hire. My, I, my fee is really high, but well, it's all right. <laughs> I don't know if it's so much the fee that's high, but there is, uh, there's definitely a, uh, a, a payment that is levied against someone who hunts with you. So. <laughs> It's, well, it doesn't we won't come free. Explore that any further. We'll let that sit where it is. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, I I hope that people. I, I I mean, we're pretty much done with most seasons. You guys have a couple seasons in Idaho that go into December. Right now, the late rifle seasons are wrapping up in Arizona. Is there much? I mostly cow hunts in December. I think. Yeah, we've got of. a we've got a late archery hunt that runs pretty much the, the pretty much the month of uh, December here in Idaho. It's for what? either sex. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of antlerless hunts that go into December, especially you know, for short range muzzleloader archery. Definitely plenty of options and opportunity, but it can what, be what, uh, very weather dependent. What what is this late archery season in Idaho? Why have I not heard about that? I'm not sure. There's a season open right now that you can go and uh, hunt with a bow and see how many fingers you come back with. Cause it's cold. Huh. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. kind of a higher higher elevation. If you get weather, it can be really good. Those elk will come and stack up on the ridges kind of in that transition zone. And uh, I think this year would be a really good year to do that hunt, especially with the snow we just got this weekend. I think it pushes the elk down, but they're still up high enough, but they're concentrated and it'd be a, a really incredible hunt. Hmm. I did not know about that. So next year I don't have to sit at home in December. Yeah. We don't have to do a podcast <laughs> the first week of December. We can be hunting and do the <laughs> podcast from hunting camp. Oh, uh, there you go. I'll tell my wife, you know what? I just found a way to extend my season into late December. <laughs> <laughs> she'll be thrilled if you tell her right now you might be okay she might say you know what i yeah. could use another break from you right now so maybe plan right. it right now and maybe that's we'll what okay. i should do but I, I i don't think i'm gonna push it that far i, I already push it pretty far so. <laughs> but uh saturday which is the day after this podcast goes live I'm going to be down in Las Vegas at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's Hunter and Outdoor Christmas. And we did a, a hunt giveaway sweepstakes with the Elk Foundation, us, and Onyx Maps this year. And we're going to pull the winner for a five-day come and hunt elk with Randy. Uh, all expense paid, everything hunt. So it'll be interesting to see who wins. And, and is this the hunt that I'm not eligible to be a part of? You're not eligible, Corey. I'm sorry. You, we All already right. threw your email address. We already threw out of the system. All right. All right. 
Uh, Actually, I I don't even know who who all's in the system that the Elk Foundation is running it. So, I uh, <laughs> I, but if your email comes up, I'm saying, oh, draw again. <laughs> Man, I'm starting to get a complex here. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll it'll be fun. I one thing I do enjoy about what we get to do is I get to meet a lot of new people, uh, talk elk hunting with a lot of new folks, and. I get more excited when someone shoots their first elk than if I shoot my own elk. And I don't know if this winner, whoever gets drawn, I don't know if they'll be a new elk hunter, an experienced elk hunter. A part of me hopes that it's someone who's never shot an elk before. Uh, I I get so much fun out of watching them get that opportunity. But who knows? I guess someone's got the lucky random number. We just don't know who it is yet. Yep. No, and that's, we, uh, we had an opportunity this season to hunt with, uh, a hunt winner. We did a hunt giveaway with mountain ops through elk oh, 101 right. last year and took out and the, the winner had hunted elk, uh, 10 times and had never killed one. And so it, it was, we, I think I hunted harder and tried harder on that hunt to help him fill a tag than I ever have on, on any of my own. And, you know, it's just tough. We're hunting public land. It was an over the counter tag and. It just, uh, no matter how hard we tried, we did have one really good day and got really close and had some opportunities, but then uh, we didn't have, those opportunities vanished pretty quickly and came down to what it always comes down to, just hunting hard, and we did not help him fill his first tag, so that was uh, a <coughs> tough one, a but, but again, you always worry about hunting with somebody you don't know and, and all of that, and we were very, very fortunate. He was uh, just a to get to spend a few days with and took it very graciously he he wanted to be successful i think more than we wanted him to be successful and gave it all he had and in the end was happy just for the experience and got to experience some things he had never experienced before and although he didn't fill a tag he was very grateful and, and very happy cool well i i always fit we've done two sweepstakes in the past I always feel more pressure on those hunts than any hunts I do. Uh, one, because it's a guest, and I know that this is a special opportunity for them. I really want them to fill the tag, and I just, I don't know. I i, I put a lot of pressure on myself in those hunts. I, maybe I should, totally. but I do. No, and I, I'm the same. It's almost like, you know, you're, you aren't a guide. We aren't guides, but... We're there hunting with that person and trying to share what we supposedly know with them. And what we don't want to do is expose what we don't know. And that seems to <laughs> seems to come to the surface a little bit quicker on those hunts, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see who wins. Uh, I'm thankful to the Elk Foundation there. Them and Onyx are, are such great partners there. They they ran the whole contest. I was out on the road. I I didn't have time to do it. So, but now they're hounding me if we'll do it again next year. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> uh, maybe I'll throw your name out there. No, of course yeah, you'll do it next gonna, year. I'm I was going to say I'm sitting here creating all these false email addresses so I can try to enter real quick so mine won't get thrown <laughs> out. But I'm guessing it's probably closed <laughs> since you're drawing it this weekend. Yeah, I got a question for you. Um, do you, how often do you shoot your bow in the winter time? 
in the off season. Not as often as I should, but I did just get a, a new bow and I'm getting it dialed in and set up and I'm loving it. So I'm shooting it more than what I have in the past. But I, you know, it's, it's hard. I always have my bow with me. Um, I try to shoot even if it's just 10 yards here in the office or something, you know, a little bit more frequently than than what I do at least close range during the summer. But it's hard. Yeah. You know, we live in an area where there's, we get a lot of snow. And so just going out and brushing off a target, I usually put my targets away so that they are usable next year. And so it's it's mostly relegated to indoor shooting this time of year. Okay. Because I'll keep shooting now until I go to my archery coos deer hunt in arizona in mid-january but then after that i have tax season and i seem to really <laughs> get out of the shooting mode for about three months and when i pick it up again in april and may i'm i'm just messed up again nothing's changed on my bow the whole setup is the same but I'm really crappy after about three or four months of not picking it up. So this year I'm resolving that I'm going to do what you just said. I'm going to shoot a lot more and maybe I won't. Yep. I might lose the edge, but I won't be super rusty. You know, I think it's just that, and you mentioned it, you take three or four months off and you come back and it's like, holy cow, is this the same bow? Am I the same person? And, and I think it really just comes down to that muscle memory. And even if you're just shooting 10 yards and you shoot 10 arrows a day, just in your office or, you know, wherever it is, depending on, on where you live. But that helps with that muscle memory. And going through, you know, at 10 yards, you know, you can hit the target. So you have that tendency, I think, to pull back and punch the trigger and be fine. But if you go through the the mechanics of the shot and really pick a point, pick a spot, execute a good release, you know, a good follow through, all of that, there's, you know, it, it can be incredibly beneficial. So when you do go out and go back out to the range, your form and everything is still dialed in. It's just a matter of putting the right pin on the on the right place at that point. Yeah. Well, maybe we I'm, need to do a, a an episode on archery and setting up a bow and tuning a bow and practice regiments and all of that. That'd be a an interesting yeah. one. It'd be worthwhile. I, yeah. I think it would. I it just you know one of the other things that. <clears throat> comes up with me is I had LASIK surgery in 2007 and my left eye is my it over time your eyes adjust even after you have LASIKs I did not know this uh, and my left eye is still perfect at long distance my right eye has adjusted for all the up close computer work I do uh, at my CPA firm and now since I'm right eye dominant I'm running into this struggle of when I come to full draw and I look at those pins, if the pins are clear, the target beyond about 50 yards starts getting slightly blurry. Or if the tar if I kind of squint and make the target clear out past 50 yards, then the pins get a little blurry. So I got rid of my 50-yard pin this year. I'm, I've got a 20, 30, 40. And that's it. I don't have a tape. I don't have anything. I just decided, you know what? If it's out there 50 yards, it's either I got to get closer or it's going to get away. And yep. Maybe there, maybe there's some solution. Maybe there's an optometrist or ophthalmologist listening to the podcast to say, oh, no, here's what you do for that. Yeah. No, and that would be, I get, I get quite a few emails with that with people. I think, you know, it must be about 50 or so where that really starts happening because a lot of times people say I'm in my 50s and 
really having troubles focusing on my pin and the target at the same time, and I don't know the solution. So, yeah, if somebody's out there listening, email us and let us know what you found as a solution. Yeah, well, it's going to be another long winter before elk season gets here. Darn it. Yet. But you know what? It's going to be here before we know it. That's, uh, there's, there's plenty to do to keep us going. So, uh, Well, I know what I'll be doing. I was doing it last night. I was out on go hunt researching because I, I don't know how you do it, but I apply for tags for me, some family members, some of our guest hunters. This year I'll be, I'll be doing it for the sweepstakes winner, uh, my camera crew. So I have a different strategy for just about everybody based on what their point level is, based on what they want to do and where they want to go. And so I, I bet you if you ask the folks at Go Hunt, who spends the most time on the Insider, if they could track logins. And I think they've Chris Porter down there told me this one time that they looked at my account activity and how many hours I spend. Uh, maybe I'm just bored. Maybe I'm a number geek. I don't know. But... I, I spend a lot of time researching and uh, draw odds, units, uh, any little piece I can pick up that might help me have a, a hunt next year. That's, that's what I spend a lot of time doing in January, February, and March. Totally. But you're saying I should be shooting my bow more. Well, you know, you got you to gotta make room for a little bit of all of it, I think. So maybe right. maybe cut back a little bit so that you aren't the top person on Go Hunt's list for time spent on their site, and maybe be in the top twenty or so, and then spend okay. that extra ten minutes a day shooting your bow. <laughs> there you go. Well, I think I'm going to do that. I the good news is where I live and where you live, I suspect you have an outdoor range at your home. Uh, I I have that. I just walk out on off the porch and. So I can do that. The downside is here in Montana, you know, it's, it, you find reasons not to do it in January when it's four degrees out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. the hard part is we're already covered up. I drove by my targets last night and thought I need to get those put in the shed because there's already a foot and a half of snow on them and it's yeah. going to keep piling up here for the next four months. So it's time to move the targets indoors and figure out another strategy for shooting the bow for the winter yeah so but there's other thing you know like you said the coos hunt keeps you going uh we hunt predators through the winter with bows and there's oh, stuff okay. going on now and you know by the time we get into february march we're starting to get some 3d shoots down in the valley where the snow's not as deep and so it can uh, it can be minimized the the boring time of just shooting a target at 10 yards for five minutes a day yeah well, I uh, I think we're we've kept the audience a while here, Corey. Do do we have a Sitka question of the week this week? Ooh, or uh, do we have a hundred Sitka questions? I was gonna week? say I can uh, open up the folder here and pull through the hundreds of them unless you have one ready. Uh, I I I don't, and, and okay. I I'm gonna be the the lazy guy. I just got back from an archery mule deer hunt in Colorado. Uh, I've been home all of about, well, I was home on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, that's a requirement of marriage at my house, uh, or continued marriage. <laughs> so <laughs> I I looked at all those emails when I got in Saturday night when I got home, and I 
I'm like, oh my goodness, look at all these. And so I've been lazy. I haven't, I haven't went through them all to, to see what the, yep. the question of the week should be. But if you want to look for one, I, I'll do the uh, Elk Foundation access piece of the week. And the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was honored by the BLM. Uh, as it, there's an award that the BLM gives for their top partners uh, in access and landscape uh, improvement or uh, habitat improvement. And this year, the BLM gave that award uh, to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and I got to talking to some of the folks, and I did not know that the number had grown this large, but since they started in 1984, so 34 years ago, the Elk Foundation and its partners have opened up or improved access on 1.2 million acres of new public lands. That's that's new access or improved access where it was very difficult access in the past. And you think about 1.2 million acres, that's a lot of elk hunting ground that anybody who has the tag can go and do it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's public land use access there not just elk hunting use that's that's a lot of opportunities for a lot of people and a lot of uh, things that we enjoy outside of elk hunting that that are open to us so it's not just elk hunters who benefit from those efforts and if you're not this is uh our encouragement to you to consider spending at least 35 dollars a year to be a member and and i know that you're contribution and your membership is going to a an incredibly good cause that you really don't ever have to question what it's going to you know that it's being used uh, in the right way and I don't say you know give blindly I just say there's enough data and everything of where the money is going that you uh, you know it's going to a good cause so we ready for the Sitka question of the week this one uh, it's definitely been on my mind since we did that hunt giveaway and Tommy was the hunt winner that hunted with us this year. He's 65 years old. He came from college station, Texas. And I think he said the elevation was 53 feet or something. And the first day, I mean, you just 53 years old. He was a, he's an ex college football player. So he's had knee replacements, um, came from low elevation. He, he worked out, he was excited to win this hunt and he put in time working out but it just about killed him, especially the first couple of days there. And going from 50 feet in elevation and coming to the mountains where it's, you know, we started at six or 6,500 feet and went all the way up almost to 9,000 feet. And uh, the mountains were fairly steep. So the question that we got comes from Anthony. And Anthony says, I'd love to hear more advice on preparing physically for hunting in the mountains. What exercise and training should be focused on and how does altitude affect you? I live in Michigan and have no experience with being in the mountains, so any info is greatly appreciated. So, you know, I'll just lead into it here, and then I'd love to hear your take, Randy, but I take it for granted. We're in the mountains every day. I live in the mountains. I mean, literally, my house is in the mountains, so for me to even go out and get firewood, I'm at elevation. We live at 5,200 feet in elevation or something. Uh, everything I do is is at elevation, and I think I take for granted sometimes what it's like and I know I suffer going from 5,000 feet to 9,000 feet I, I recognize that difference so to come from zero and go to 9,000 is probably 10x uh, a worse problem but maybe you can talk Randy on on 
physical conditioning. I know you're not a gym rat that spend a lot of time pumping iron and everything, but what are some things that somebody can do that's coming from a low elevation and has never been to the mountains before to help them at least be somewhat prepared? Yeah, and I I don't know of these devices, but I've heard of them. Uh, they're called an altitude mask. Uh, okay, we're, we're, some, we're not going to talk any more about that. Move on to the next topic. <laughs> really? Are they a joke? You know, they, they're not going to help you at all. Okay. Uh, when it comes to altitude. And, and the reason I say that is we talked about it with Tommy quite a bit and uh, he had used an altitude mask and talked about it quite a bit uh, on a treadmill. And yep, that's what I've it, heard. Of. All it does, you know, there, there's a lot of research on it and the, the benefits of it, but it's not going to benefit an elk hunter coming from sea. Like, I guess where I'm going with it is don't get on a treadmill and put on an oxygen mask and show up at Colorado at 10,000 feet and think that you're going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, from, I, I'm going to look at it from one, a conditioning standpoint, but, uh, yep. I'm, I'm more concerned about people who show up at 10,000 feet from 53 feet where Tommy came from, that they end up with altitude sickness. Yep. That, that worries me. So I, I've seen people who've had altitude sickness. I'm lucky. I live at 5,000 feet. I can go from five to 10,000 feet. Yeah, I feel the difference, definitely. But I'm not, I'm probably not at great risk for altitude sickness as somebody who is coming from sea level to 10,000 feet. And so I always tell people, get there a few days early and acclimate yourself before you start exerting yourself. Don't get off the airplane, drive right to the trailhead and start hiking from 10,000 feet you run a huge risk of altitude sickness that that i know that may not be the physical conditioning part of it but it's a worry i always have when people say oh yeah i did this and i did that or whatever and there's nothing to it well there's a lot to it in my mind uh and so you talk to doctors and they will tell you one of the concerns of el- of those ad- abrupt changes is altitude sickness and if you've i've never had it but i've seen people who have altitude sickness it looks like one of the most miserable sicknesses you can have and so yep i i throw that out there for me like you said i'm not a gym rat i just put a pack on and i hike any type of elevation any type of incline i can um a lot of times i go off the trails because elk hunting very often, it's not like you're on a trail nonstop. You're, you know, side hilling and you're going downhill. And <clears throat> for me, the I put weight in that pack. Uh, you're the unevenness of the terrain, the having to step over logs, down, uh, you know, a little rock chute or whatever, and having weight on your back really strengthens that that core part, those those muscles in your core that replicate elk hunting. And what you do while you're elk hunting, better than anything I've found. Now, I'm sure there are people listening who are serious into exercise and fitness. And they're going to have a whole list of other ideas or better ideas or say, Newberg, you're an idiot. Shut up. And and maybe <laughs> maybe I should shut up. But that's really where I'm at with it. I, I, I don't have time in my schedule to be a gym rat. Some people do and some people... They don't have the good fortune of living where I do, where I'm just a mile from a Forest Service trailhead. 
But for me, it's, you know, do things that replicate what elk hunting is. This, the treadmill does not replicate elk hunting. No matter what elevation you're at, you're going to get, I think, more value out of going and hiking uneven terrain, climbing over things, having weight on your back than what you're going to get on that treadmill or whatever exercise device it is. Yep. Now you, uh, you said everything I would have said. So I, I do spend some time not in the gym, but I have a home gym and you know, I don't lift weights to get big. I lift weights to keep all my muscles working and to keep pain at bay from the joints and, and all of that. Uh, but for somebody coming from a non elk hunting environment into elk country, I can't think of anything better than what you just described. Just putting on a pack put 30 pounds in it, 20 pounds, 40 pounds, whatever is uncomfortable, but not going to hurt you and go out and find a hill, any hill, a mountain, whatever you got. If it's a 120 foot tall hill and it's got some elevation to it, start at the bottom, walk to the top, turn around, come back down and do that a hundred times, whatever it is, make yourself uncomfortable, make yourself sweat, make yourself gasp for air. And if you get your body used to gasping for air at a hundred feet in elevation, it's going to be able to respond when you get to 9,000 feet in elevation. It's going to know I'm gasping for air. I need more oxygen. It's going to be more efficient at getting that produced for you so that you can, can breathe again. But your legs are the biggest muscle that you're going to be using. They're going to be needing a lot of oxygen. And when you get to elevation and start hiking up a mountain, you don't go very far before you realize you're lacking oxygen. And just like you said, the more you can do to, to increase that and to make yourself uncomfortable at any elevation, it's just going to go that much farther for you in elk country. Yeah. And for me, I know there's only so much people can do at their home at a low elevation, but there's things you can do when you get there. Also, one is stay hydrated. Don't let yourself get dehydrated. You get dehydrated way quicker than you think you are. And dehydration just complicates every other part of the change in environment, the lack of oxygen, the exertion. And also nutrition, you know, yep. make sure that you're, you're giving your body the fuel it needs in the regular intervals that your, your body needs them. It's, it's amazing how much help that can provide to the person who doesn't live at high elevation. Yep. Now, and we've got, you know, I've, I've got my workout routine, I guess you, you could say that I try to do throughout the year that helps me stay in some kind of a, a elk chasing condition um, in the University of Elk Hunting online course. We have three different workouts for elk hunters, and they're all completely different. So one is not even gym based at all, not even weight based. One of them is weight based, you know, and one of them is a combination of the two, so that you can find one that fits your your schedule and all that. But at the at the bare minimum and as a base, I think what you described is spot on. And if if people are coming out elk hunting for the first time, and just can throw on a backpack and go and hike hills with weight in it, they're going to be so much more ready for elk country than if they're, like you said, being on a treadmill is not going to help you with stabilization, with all those little muscles that you're going to use on a day-by-day basis. And, uh, you know, it's going to push you cardiovascularly a little bit, but not necessarily with the right muscles and, and acclimating your body to using those muscles and replenishing oxygen based on that muscle usage well is that uh is that a wrap what's that 
Is that a wrap for this episode? I'm thinking we got a wrap here. Uh, people probably have work to do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think we'll we'll chime in again next week after we know uh, who the winner is of this uh, elk hunt. Uh, we can talk about that based on i'll try to find out more about the person's experience and maybe we can have some discussion about okay if that person has this level of experience or that level here's some things that we would be advising anybody not just that sweepstakes winner but yeah anybody. maybe we need to uh maybe we need to have them on as a guest before they hunt <laughs> and then again afterwards oh maybe uh i could ask them uh I don't know what they'll what their response will be. They might be like, "No, I don't want to talk to a bunch of knuckleheads like you guys." <laughs> so, well, folks, thanks for listening. Corey, thanks for uh, jamming in and, and joining up here. Uh, Absolutely, hope that December treats you well. You're you're a basketball coach again this winter. I am coaching high school basketball again, and we uh, had our first two game road trip this past weekend, so we're uh, getting that underway and. Got a lot to work on here over the next three months with, uh, with a group of high school boys, but we're uh, we're starting that up and looking forward to that. Cool. Before we leave, I got to ask, your Destination Elk series that you did on YouTube, where can people yeah. find it? Uh, just on the Elk 101 YouTube. So it's Elk101.com, since we can't use .com on YouTube, Elk101.com is the username on YouTube. And uh, we've got a little playlist highlighted there at the top. It says Destination Elk, Day-by-Day Day Elk Series. And all 19 videos, all 19 days of our elk season are loaded up there and available to watch. Uh, if you want highlights, go to day four. That's when David Brinker stuck a broadhead in his leg. We've got that <laughs> episode. Uh, day five was uh, my dream situation for Roosevelt Elk. And you get to see... Uh, me in close quarters with a herd of Roosevelt elk in some of the most beautiful elk country you can imagine. Uh, Dirk joined us in Wyoming. There's always good comedy and banter when Dirk's in camp. Those are some good episodes. The hunt winner, those hunts are on there. And then uh, we capped it off with our hunt of a lifetime hunt, which uh, for me is is the highlight of the season. So if there's one video that you're going to watch out of that series, go to day 18 and uh, watch the Hunt of a Lifetime episode. We got to hunt with 17-year-old Jeff from Pennsylvania who uh, battled leukemia and uh, had an incredible hunt with him. Cool. Well, folks, until the next time, now you've got a place where you can go and entertain yourself by watching Elk101.com out on Corey's YouTube channel. Yep, not to be confused with Elk101.com, which C-O-N, it's C-O-M. well you hang in there Corey we'll talk again next week folks thanks for listening sounds great all right thank you guys